Father in heaven, I ask for your help now for listeners and for me so that we would understand your word as you intended it and that we would both understand and embrace its implications for our lives. And I ask, O Lord, that this morning there would happen a kind of harmony and a kind of commitment to racial diversity and harmony and justice that would have reverberations far beyond our church because our people are scattered beyond our church gathered and because they touch thousands. And so, Lord, I pray that the upshot would be powerful for the glory of Christ in all the ways that we've been celebrating now in these last 30 minutes together. So come and to that end, help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. My main point this morning is this, that the more you understand and the more you cherish the vision of God as free and gracious and sovereign, the more you will love and live and labor for racial diversity and racial harmony. And say it again. The main point, the more you understand and the more you cherish or embrace a vision of God as free and gracious and sovereign in all things, in all that he does, the more you will love and live and labor for racial harmony and racial diversity. Now, I have in mind this morning, for various reasons, mainly the racial divide between black and white. Though I am fully aware, and you could pick it up from the music, that there are many other ethnicities and many other racial issues to be dealt with, there are reasons for it. It is unique to our historical history in this country, and it is most pressing upon us because of immediate references in our president's talk about the University of Michigan's admissions policies and Condoleezza Rice's responses to that and now the flap over the Confederate flag again in Missouri and it is always there either on the surface or just beneath the surface. If you don't feel it, there's a very simple reason for it. You're part of the majority culture and you never even think that somebody might be treating you differently because you happen to be part of that. It doesn't take but a little imagination to put yourself in the other place. So my prayer this morning is that you would see racial harmony and racial diversity and what it costs as a necessary fruit, a necessary fruit of a biblical vision of God that is contained in the Reformed faith. Pastor Sherrard's article, if you haven't read it, do it, in the Star this past week was a powerful starting place. It had in it, among many other 
significant lines, this prayer. He said, my prayer for us at Bethlehem is that we will love racial harmony because we love the gospel and that we strive to be known as a gospel-centered church that exalts the glory of God and the person of Christ and who, as a result of the gospel passions, reflect the multicolored wisdom of God. He is faithful, and he, by sovereign design, will do it. In other words, the roots of racial harmony and racial diversity are in the gospel and in the sovereignty of God. You pick up those two words, the gospel and the sovereignty of God. Where racial harmony does not flourish, the gospel is diminished, contradicted, and the sovereignty of God is obscured. So it's a gospel issue, it's a sovereignty of God issue. What I mean by the Reformed faith in the title of the message and in saying that I pray that God will make plain that racial harmony is a a branch on the root of the Reformed faith, what, what I pray you will see is that the Reformed faith is the faith that was recovered in the Reformation by Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. Not that we believe everything those men believed. Only the Bible is perfect in what it teaches. But those men, all of them, in their various traditions saw at the center of the Bible some realities that we also see and love. And I'm going to argue today that those realities, if believed, understood, embraced, will yield racial harmony. One way to describe the Reformed faith is with the five alones, or in Latin, the five solas. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by the authority of Scripture alone. You can sum up the Reformed faith with those five alones, and at the heart of those five statements is the precious doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is why I had Matthew read the text that he did. Let me direct your attention to one part of it. Romans 3, 28 to 30. Listen to the racialization, although in one sense that word is now being used in a way I don't want to use it, so I better scrap that, because if you've read the book Divided by Faith, that word's going to have a different meaning than I just gave it. The race-relatedness of justification We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? One ethnic group. Is he not God of the Gentiles? That is, all ethnic groups. Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised, one ethnic group, by faith, and the uncircumcised, all the rest of the ethnic groups, by faith. In other words, the fact that God is one and the fact that human beings are justified in one way, namely faith alone, is made a race issue here. 
an ethnicity issue. Justification is by faith alone precisely to nullify ethnic advantages. That's what this says. Feelings of superiority are nullified by justification by faith alone. God has chosen to justify sinners, the ungodly, in such a way that it makes plain no ethnic group has any advantage in getting right with God or being favored by God. Our ethnicity does not save us and it does not damn us. We have no advantage by being one color or culture or the other when it comes to getting right with God by justification through faith alone. Christ saves and sin damns, not ethnicity positively or negatively. The heart of the Reformed faith, justification by faith alone, is explicitly made an ethnicity issue in the Apostle Paul in Romans 3:28 to 30. Now, this morning, I'm not going to sum up the Reformed faith in the five solas or in justification by faith alone. I'm going to sum it up in the doctrines of grace, that is, the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That's another way of summing up the center of what Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and the traditions stemming from them embraced and saw in the Bible as the center in those days. And I still see it that way, and we embrace it that way as a church today. Remember my main point. To the degree that you understand and embrace or cherish the biblical vision of God's sovereignty and his freedom and his grace, to that degree will you love and live and labor for racial harmony. And so I want to display for you the sovereignty of God in these five truths called the doctrines of grace. Let's take them one at a time and show how they're related to race. Number one, total depravity. The Bible teaches that since the original sin of Adam, all of us are incapable morally incapable of submitting to God. Romans 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. There are two classes of people, those who are in the Spirit through faith in Christ, those who are in the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you cannot submit to God's law it looks like foolishness to you. Why? Ephesians 2.1 You are dead through your trespasses and sins. The natural man, who we are by nature, apart from the intervening work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the natural man regards the gospel neither as true nor beautiful or desirable. And therefore, when the natural man hears the gospel, it seems foolish, unhelpful, and false. And he is therefore unable to submit to the gospel. 
Why would you submit to something so foolish and something so ugly and so undesirable as a crucified God? The natural person is helpless and we're all in that condition. The implications of that doctrine for racial harmony are massive. Most Christians, when they want to talk about getting together racially, focus on the positive truth, and it's not bad to do this, we will do it, the positive truth that we are all created in the image of God equally. That's very true, it's very relevant, it's very powerful, and very inadequate. Because if you persuade a fallen, sinful, unregenerate, rebellious, proud human being that he's created like God, he ain't good enough to receive that doctrine. He will butcher it. It will feed his pride, and that pride will very likely distort the very understanding of the other person's nature and feed his own sense of superiority. We're not good enough to hear that we are created in the image of God. We must hear something along with it. And that is that we are corrupt and depraved and guilty and condemned and under the just sentence of hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, including sinners from every race, every color. The racial diversity of hell is a very important doctrine. Romans 2 verse 9 puts it like this. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. The racial diversity under the wrath of God is very important to know. God is no respecter of ethnicity in salvation or damnation. Every color gloriously saved, every color horribly damned. The human race and every ethnic group in it is united in the great reality of depravity and condemnation. We're all lost in the woods together. We're all sinking on the same boat. We're all dying of the same disease. There is a massive camaraderie of condemnation. And the more clearly we see that, the more... Two wonderful things will happen. One, we will be humbled and frightened because of our sin and made desperate like a little child to have a Savior together. I have never seen a white-hooded Klansman or a Farrakhan follower brokenhearted for sin, humble, desperate for a Savior. I've known Klansmen. I grew up with them. I knew one that went to my church in South Carolina. And I'll say it again. I have never met a white-hooded Klansman 
or a Farrakhan follower who is broken hearted for his sin, humbled before the living God and like a little child desperately in need of a savior. And the other effect it would have if we understood our camaraderie and condemnation is that when we saw the sins of others, we would see them as branches on the roots of our own corruption. We may not have done every little thing the other person is doing that we don't like, but if we knew ourselves, if we knew the corruption from which Christ died to save us, we would see the sins of others. We would see the sins of others as coming from the stuff of our own heart. I'll tell you, the doctrine of depravity is massively relevant for racial harmony. Number two, unconditional election. This is the doctrine we've been on now for weeks in Romans 9. God chooses a people for himself before the foundation of the world without any reference to their faith, their willing or their running. It is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who has mercy. This does not mean, mark this carefully now, North and south. Mark this carefully. The doctrine of unconditional election does not mean we don't have to believe in Christ in order to be saved. And it does not mean we will be damned without sin and unbelief being the cause. We are saved by faith and we are condemned because of sin and unbelief. What it does mean is this. Who believes and is saved and who rebels and is not saved is finally decided by God. We don't run the universe. We do not make the ultimate decision of how hell and how heaven are populated. God rules without taking your responsibility and accountability away. Mystery though it is. Here's the way it's stated in Scripture. Acts 13.48, Paul preaching in Antioch of Pisidia at the end of his message. Luke says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified God. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. It's just a clear doctrine of unconditional election. We believe because we were elect. We are not elect because we will believe. I owe my faith to the fact that I was chosen. First comes the sovereign purpose of God's election, and then comes my faith, and therefore his election is unconditional on any faith or any Human decision or feeling or behavior or distinctive. God is free from all constraints outside himself when he elects. And therefore, your color has nothing to do with it. Your culture and ethnicity has nothing to do with whether you are elect 
or not. No ethnic group can say they are chosen because of God's preference for their color and no ethnic group can say they are not chosen because of God's not preferring their color or any physical or psychological or spiritual qualities they bring at all. No ethnic group is chosen because of its distinctives. We are utterly and totally and freely chosen unconditionally. God is absolutely free and unconstrained. This is his glory, this is his name, and this is what it means for him to act righteously, like we saw last week. Therefore, unconditional election severs the deepest root of racism. If I am among God's elect, it is owing entirely to God's free grace and not my distinctives. There is no ground for boasting whatsoever in God's election. There is no ground for pride. There is no ground in God's election. Remember this from last week? There is no ground in God's election for despair. In fact, It is unconditional election that frees everyone from despairing. Whether it's because of a lifetime of sinning or a lifetime of ethnicity that somehow you have been taught to believe puts you out of favor with God. Or puts you in favor with God. There can be no pride. There can be no despair. If you believe in unconditional election, God is free and nothing in you can stop him from having chosen you. Third, limited atonement. Another word for it is definite atonement. Another word for it is particular redemption. The main point of the doctrine of limited atonement is not that Christ did not die for everybody, the way John 3.16 says he did. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is absolutely true. He died. He was sent. He died so that whoever believes will be saved. No Calvinist disagrees with that. Christ died so that the gospel could be preached indiscriminately to all with the absolute confidence that everyone who wills will be saved. It is sufficient for all. That is not denied by the doctrine of limited atonement. What the doctrine of limited atonement denies is that there is no design in the atonement for the bride of Christ. There is no particular purpose of God to do something extraordinary for the covenant bride, the covenant people. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up 
for her to purify her. In other words, when he shed his blood, he effected something for his bride. He did not just create an opportunity for someone to become his bride. He knew his bride. He chose his bride. And now he dies for his bride in a way that goes beyond opportunity to effect and purchases not just the possibility of faith, but the believing itself. Had Christ not bought my gift of faith, I would have no faith. I didn't deserve to be a believer. I didn't deserve to have my eyes opened. That has to be bought for me effectually. And that's what limited atonement affirms that there is this glorious, broad offer to all, valid and true. Everyone who believes your sin is paid for here, come, come, come. And God knows his own. And their coming has been bought. I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom the Father has given me, for they are yours. And for their sake, I consecrate myself to die, that they may be sanctified in the truth. He has a design. This is, this is what's so precious about the cross for the bride. When we look at the cross, we don't just see something that persuaded us in our independence to come to him. We see the cross as having purchased our very awakening and our very coming. It's so precious. And Paul carried it further. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not then with him give us all things? Do you see the logical connection between having laid down his life for someone and the certainty that the someone will be saved? He didn't lay down his life to create mere possibilities which humans would rule over. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, all his own, how shall he not save them utterly, having thus bought them effectually? Got anything to do with race? No person, no group, no ethnic group ever made any contribution to their ransom. You never made any contribution to your ransom. The ransom that has been paid for you is so complete. No ethnicity, no intelligence, no spirituality, nothing contributed to what was paid for you effectually on the cross. We are equally slaves to sin and corruption and futility and death and condemnation and depravity. And there is a ransom for us out of our slavery. And it is full and complete. 
Oh, the cross, what a leveler. What a leveler is the cross. It's a leveler of ethnicities and a leveler of humanity because first, it shows we're all desperate sinners and need a savior to die for us. Second, because only by faith can it be received and faith is the great thing all can do. No distinctive makes you more able to do faith. And thirdly, it is a leveler because it was such an effective ransom that no child of God dare ever think he made any contribution to the purchase. I love the cross where my Savior died. I love the cross where I was justified. And I love the cross where I was crucified to the world and to racism and to prejudice and to my own sense of superiority. Fourth, irresistible grace. Just as the cross purchases the elect, the grace of God effectively draws the elect to himself. Irresistible grace is not something that, let me say it this way. Don't infer from the term irresistible grace that you can't resist it. (laughs) Infer this. You can resist it until God decides to overcome your resistance. Because the Bible is very clear that people resist grace. Really clear. Stephen concluded his death sermon... You stiff-necked people, you always resist the grace of God. That's what he says. But the Bible is equally clear. When God undertakes to save a person, he simply overcomes the resistance. I mean, here's a clear example of this. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, I was set apart from my mother's womb for this ministry. Well, how much persecution and murder and lying and pride did God allow before he knocked him off his pony on the Damascus Road? A lot. And that's where many of you are. Thinking you're in control. If God wants an Apostle Paul, he'll knock him off his donkey and get an Apostle Paul. And... He will let it go until the time is right. He could have done it a month earlier and spared some poor Christians some persecution. Or a year earlier, or 20 years earlier, and spared Paul a lot of grief. He didn't. And so, the doctrine of irresistible grace does not mean you can't fight with God. It doesn't mean you can't stiff arm him and push him away. He'll let you do that. It just means that when he aims to save you, he'll save you. John 6, 44. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. John 6, 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. Ephesians 2, 8. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. 
2 Timothy 2.25, God may perhaps grant them repentance. My faith is a gift. Your faith and repentance, if you have them, are gifts. If you don't have faith today, ask ask for it and look to the place from which it comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So pray and read, pray and read, pray and read, pray and listen. And God comes and awakens. Which means now, in regard to race, we contribute nothing, not only to our election, and we contribute nothing to our ransom. We also contribute nothing to the awakening of faith and repentance in our lives. God irresistibly takes a dead person and raises them from the dead and faith is awakened by God's glorious, irresistible grace. And all that... I heard a great story about one of you. Maybe you're listening up at Roseville. Maybe you'll be in the next service. I don't know. A person who, by all accounts, was on a hell-bent pathway this week to perdition and through absolutely amazing circumstances was arrested, stopped, turned around, put in touch with Christians from Bethlehem and is now looking hopefully toward God. And when I heard this story, I thought if that gets explained away by natural processes, then someone should be ashamed of himself. We don't contribute racially or ethnically or intellectually or by any wealth or achievement to our irresistible grace. Which also means, by the way, there's no scoundrel, no racist, no Klansman, No black, white, brown, red, yellow arrogance that God cannot overcome and subdue and make happy with himself in holiness forever and ever. Never give up on anyone. Never look upon another race or another arrogant person in your own race and say, too far gone. No power. Not possible. Can't save such a person. What a belittling of election. What a belittling of, of the cross. What a belittling of irresistible grace and the power of God. I close with the fifth point. Perseverance of the saints. This may be the most immediately felt relevant point. At least it feels that way for me. What do I mean by perseverance? The doctrine of perseverance. I mean Those whom God calls, he keeps. He's called you in Roseville, he'll keep you for himself. If he's called you here, he'll keep you for himself. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. Those whom he predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Nobody will fall out between justification and glorification. Persevering power will keep you believing and obedient. Not perfect, 
believing and obedient, new direction, not perfection, to the end. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now, how does that relate to the battle at Bethlehem? Let's just, let's just say Bethlehem. You could say America. Let's just say Bethlehem. The battle at Bethlehem for racial harmony. How does that, that point relate? And I'll just pick one implication. I mean, I'm just picking sample implications of these doctrines. There are more. And I'll probably get letters telling me I missed some, which is okay. I'm, I can handle letters which is what this point is about. The only reason I can handle letters is because of the persevering grace of God. If you are thin-skinned, or if you are so rights-oriented that you are thin on mercy, or if you have such a dim and small view of the persevering, ongoing, sovereign grace of God to help you in your life, you will get on the road to racial harmony and quit five steps into it. Because as I've thought about the various issues that face me and us as a church, I think even putting this one beside the pro-life issue, this one we are more tempted to quit on because we get wounded than almost any other. Because it goes like this. Okay, you hear a message like this. I've got to do something. Got to say something. Got to be something. And so you read a book, you read an article, or you venture some comments at work or something. And the next thing that you hear is, you didn't say it right. Or you didn't say it all. Or you said it at the wrong time. Or you should have said it a long time ago. And the worldly, natural response is, excuse me, I was just trying to do what Pastor John said, and I'll go home now. That is the most human, worldly, devilish, normal response to criticism there is. There's nothing divine in it. There's nothing supernatural in it. There's nothing gracious about it. It's just normal, like we are. So how are we going to stay on the long journey, the mighty long journey, which I talked about last year? Answer, a faith that says, if the pursuit of racial diversity and harmony and justice is woven into the sovereign working of God in the way he saves sinners... And if obedience to that is part of the obedience that we need to have as we make it to heaven, then the doctrine that God will see to it that we persevere in that obedience is relevant to keep us on the road. The only reason I can stay on the road, because I know I'm going to get criticized for this sermon. I'll get it from black, I'll get it from white. I probably said something that just wasn't right. Or I should have said this a long time ago. Or I didn't say it strong enough. Or, or, or. That's okay. Let him come. 
I expect it. And when you expect it, it's a little easier to handle. Maybe you don't expect it. Maybe you're not used to being criticized. Maybe your, your skin is thin. And maybe you feel like I deserve better treatment when you don't deserve anything but hell. Maybe that's your problem. And I would just welcome you to humble yourself and thicken yourself with grace and get on the road and stay on the road till Jesus comes. Because I have the feeling we're going to be working on this till Jesus comes. Not because we won't make progress, just because I expect my children to be born sinners and their children to be born sinners. And, and the next, everybody's got to get saved in every generation. Everybody's got to grow up and get sanctified in every generation. And therefore, this is part of the sanctifying process. And it's going to be a mighty long journey. And I praise God for every one of you who sticks to anything holy. There's some of you that have bitten off good issues besides this one and have stayed at it for 20 years. And I love to watch that kind of perseverance. Well, closing exhortation. Take heart, not only from the fact that your depravity is shared by everybody in the world, every race, and that God elects unconditionally without any reference to your ethnicity or intelligence or power or wealth, and that the cross is such a full ransom to buy you out of that, that you can't make any contribution to it by any color or any other way, and that sovereign, irresistible grace got you to into the, the faith and the repentance where you can now taste and see that God is good. Take heart from all of that and that he's going to keep you. And then add some really practical, wonderful inspirations from people that have gone before you, like John Perkins. The reason I mention John Perkins is because I have this book called uh, Building Unity in the Church of the New Millennium, edited by Dwight Perry, black brother down at, he's in our denomination, he's down at uh, Moody Bible Institute, and he's edited this book, and John Perkins wrote the foreword for the book, and I was so moved by just one sentence that Perkins said, you know, you know who he is, he's uh, born in Mississippi, age 17, his brother's murdered, he takes off for California, I'm never coming back to that state again in my life. And he saved massively and powerfully by the irresistible grace of God in 1960. He heads home and has been for 43 years laying down his life for racial harmony and racial justice. And he wrote this sentence. He said that he found in this book, Building Unity in the Church of the New Millennium, a book he'd been waiting for all his life. And then he added this. I can almost say... As Simeon said when he saw the child Jesus, now let this old man depart in peace. And I just felt like saying, Bethlehem, uh, let's get old together in the battle for racial harmony and racial diversity and racial justice. Let's get old together in this. Let's not have a little spurt and then, well, that was the nice January issue. Let's not just spurt. Let's get old together in this and other battles. And God will do his decisive sovereign work.
Let's bow in, in closing prayer. Father in heaven, if I've said anything amiss or inadequate, cover it. And turn everything that's happened in this service in Roseville and down here for the glory of Christ and for the harmony of the people of Christ and by their influence all people into Christ. Oh Lord God, help us. Help us, I pray.